welcome to Counterpunch Radio. My name is Eric Dreitzer. I want to thank you so much for tuning in to episode 28. A uh, very important subject that we're going to cover today, but let me just make my usual pitch for Counterpunch because, you know, I, I think that it is really important in these times that we have media outlets that are on our side, and that is the side that stands against imperialism, the side that stands against finance capital, against big oil, against all of the corporations with all of their media appendages. We have this little place called Counterpunch and we want to keep it going. We want to keep supporting it. We want to make sure that Counterpunch sticks around now and in the foreseeable future. And one of the good ways that you can do that is by purchasing a print subscription to a subscription to the magazine. It's really great getting Counterpunch in your mailbox, seeing the artwork, seeing the columns, always about a wide variety of topics, not solely political ones either, but cultural issues, social issues, issues, economics as well. So uh, Counterpunch, the, the, the print magazine, a really great way to support this project. Uh, for the podcast, of course, you can also give us a positive review on iTunes. That helps tremendously. A lot of people make their listening choices and discover new podcasts based on recommendations and positive reviews. So every time I see a new positive review, I, I have to uh, say thank you to those of you who have done that and to those of you who plan on doing that. And of course, you you can always follow my work on my website, stopimperialism.org. Um, with all of that out of the way, I want to turn to my guest this week, um, Stephen Donziger. He's here to talk about a really important subject. Some of you may know about it, some of you may not, but if you don't know about it or if you haven't been following it recently, this is a critical story for all of us who are interested in the environment, who are interested in indigenous people and people uh, in the global south who fight back against corporate. Uh, Stephen Donziger is the U.S. legal advisor to the Ecuadorian communities that are currently and have been for a number of years suing the major oil company Chevron. Uh, Stephen has been working with uh, with this group of um, plaintiffs since 1993. He's one of the leading experts on this issue, and I'm really pleased to have him on the program. You can follow all of the information about the case at the website chevrontoxico.com. That's T-O-X-I-C-O, chevrontoxico.com. You can also follow Stephen's work on his website, stephendonziger.com. Stephen, welcome to Counterpunch Radio. Oh, it's great to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, thank you for coming on because this is a really important subject and one that I think often gets lost even among those of us who follow these issues just because it's been ongoing for so long. But I want to take a step back here and I want to just introduce this issue. I'm I'm somebody new to this issue. I've never heard about what happened with Texaco and then Chevron in Ecuador. Tell me what happened. What did those companies do and what is the nature of this legal fight? Thank you. Um, I'll try to explain it briefly because it encompasses really two decades of abuse. Basically, um, back in the 1960s, Texaco went into Ecuador, cut a deal with the Ecuadorian government at the time to drill for oil or explore and drill for oil in a huge swath of Amazon territory. Um, they ended up over the next two, three decades drilling over 400 wells. They created hundreds and hundreds of toxic waste pits gouged out of the jungle floor where they dumped um, drilling muds, toxic waste, and, and in many of the pits they put pipes in the side to drain their contents out into streams and rivers 
that the local uh, inhabitants, including several indigenous groups, relied on for their drinking water, um, for bathing, and for fishing. And they also, uh, apart from that, deliberately discharged billions of gallons. Estimates are between 15 and 18 billion gallons of what's called water of production, which is produced with uh, in the process of oil production, and they dump this directly into streams and rivers, again relied on by the local communities for their drinking water. The net effect over many years was a huge public health catastrophe, an outbreak of cancer that, that, that independent studies have estimated have killed or threatened thousands of innocent people. Chevron uh, ended up buying Texaco in 2001 and has refused to deal with this problem. Um, they, they really should clean it up on legal and moral grounds. They violated all sorts of laws um, by dumping this toxic waste, but they forced the indigenous communities and the villagers to chase them now for 22 years of litigation. The villagers ended up winning a final judgment in Ecuador where Chevron wanted the trial held. That happened in 2013 in a unanimous decision by Ecuador's Supreme Court but Chevron had stripped its assets from Ecuador and has now forced the villagers to try to go after their assets in other countries, including Canada. So where it stands now is the villagers have won the case. They're trying to collect their judgment. Chevron is refusing to pay. And really, the court battle has shifted into, into Canada and Brazil and Argentina, where the villagers are trying to see Chevron assets to pay for their judgment and pay for their cleanup. Yeah, you know, it's it's very interesting. It's you know, I followed this case uh considerably especially in the last couple of years uh since I became most interested in it and one thing that we've seen over and over again is that the Chevron people and I think we should point out I think it was Chevron bought out Texaco's operations and became the legally responsible party for Texaco's pollution in Ecuador and Chevron has really at every turn it seems to me tried to uh, manipulate this process in order to be able to get their way and every time they haven't gotten their way they've then shifted the issue so the reason and correct me if I'm wrong, but my understanding of this case was the reason they wanted it originally tried in Ecuador was because they believed they would be able to buy off the judges, to have the people in their pockets, and to get away scot-free. And it was the Ecuadorian government that to some degree ensured the independence of their judiciary, thereby creating a conflict between Chevron and the Correa government. And then Chevron, of course, now uses legal maneuvering in other countries to be able to shield their assets from this judgment. Do I have that right? You have that right. Um, I mean, basically, you know, look, I'm an American lawyer. I've been a lawyer now for, you know, about 25 years. I have never in my life seen such an abusive litigation strategy as that employed by Chevron to deny compensation to the people the company harmed in Ecuador. I mean, they initially wanted, I mean, remember the, the Ecuadorians filed the case in the United States. It was Chevron that wanted it in Ecuador. Um, understandably, given that they had polluted with impunity for about 30 years and never had to pay $1 in damages to anybody. So they exactly, surely yeah. thought, by yeah. they, they thought by shifting it to Ecuador, they could just get away with it. Yep. What ended yep. up happening is the, the communities um, in Ecuador, and I'm talking about 80 different communities spread out over the impacted area, and, and several indigenous groups, farmer communities united and formed a local organization. Um, they hired lawyers, including myself. We were brought in some other 
very talented lawyers from, from around the United States and other countries. We got financing and suddenly Chevron, rather than thinking it could just quickly, you know, steamroll the indigenous groups, found itself in a situation where the indigenous groups had figured out a way to get great lawyers and, you know, the financing needed to sustain a, a legitimate case over many years against a company that would do anything to evade justice and, and keep the thing going without a resolution because Chevron felt it was cheaper just to pay their armies of lawyers. By the way, they, they've used over 2,000 lawyers since the inception of this case from 60 different law firms, if you can believe it. Mm-hmm. They calculated it would be cheaper to finance that group of lawyers to fend off the indigenous groups and actually pay for a cleanup. And what we're seeing is just an ongoing litigation, relitigation, forum shopping. Every time they lose in one country, they initiate a lawsuit in another country for whatever reason they can come up with. And it's, it's exhausting, but the indigenous groups and their council, including myself, were very disciplined and focused on the number one priority, which is to seize Chevron's assets to force the company to comply with its legal obligations in Ecuador as determined by three layers of courts and eight separate appellate judges in Ecuador where Chevron wanted the trial held. That's the only thing we're focused on, but they're constantly attacking us. They sued me personally. They sued my colleague Pablo Fajardo, Ecuadorian lawyer, personally. There's 47 named plaintiffs, that is villagers, who are the named plaintiffs in what's essentially a class action case in Ecuador. Every single one of those individuals was sued by Chevron in a retaliation lawsuit um, in New York where I live. And, you know, so they constantly are trying to attack us, trying to use their superior resources to, um, to, to shake the claims of, 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 of people who are suffering and dying and drinking poison water. And it's a terrible, terrible, terrible abuse, and far too few people really know about it. Yeah, absolutely right. Now, here's here's a question that comes to my mind, and I, I really want to get your take on it. Do you believe that Chevron is using these tactics and doing whatever they can to avoid uh, paying out this settlement because they don't want to pay the settlement? Or, as I would contend, is it because Chevron is terrified of the precedent that this will set, that other communities will look at what happened in Ecuador and band together to say, you know what, we were harmed in a very similar situation by the very same company or one of its you know, competitors, and we want to also make a legal challenge. In other words... Does this case open the floodgates against these major uh, transnational oil companies for the damage they've caused environmentally, socially, to all of these communities all over the world? I think the answer to your question is that it's it's, it's some of both. I mean, basically, for Chevron, it's a matter of money and business. I mean, they they prefer not to pay a penny to the Ecuadorians. Um, They certainly don't want to create a legal precedent where you know, historically marginalized communities in the Amazon or in other communities around the world where Chevron operates get the dangerous idea that they can actually go to court and they have legal rights against the company. That's a very, very frightening, frightening idea for Chevron and other oil companies and really mining companies. I mean, look, I I would estimate, uh, you know, in, in response to your question, that Chevron probably has hundreds of billions of dollars in environmental liabilities around the world that it has, got, that it has gotten away with in recent decades. I mean, you can look all over the world. They have problems in Nigeria, in Peru, in Ecuador, in the United States, in Romania. I mean, communities all over the world have been organizing against Chevron because of their 
shoddy substandard production practices that almost always produce illegal levels of pollution in the communities where they operate. So, you know, what, what the business model of Chevron counts on the fact that these marginalized communities with almost no money, in the case of Ecuador, they literally have no money. They live off the forest, will never be able to figure out how to go to court and be able to hold the company accountable. And, and you know, in the rare instance when it does happen, which I would say is our situation, you know, it really is seen by Chevron as a paradigmatic shifting event that needs to be killed. I mean, Chevron doesn't just want to win the case. They want to kill off the very idea that anybody can do this. Mm -hmm. What's incredible, what's incredible in our situation is how much the communities and their legal team have accomplished in 22 years. I mean, on the one hand, you could say, wow, that's a really long time. I guess Chevron's strategy is working. But if you look at the course of the, of the case trajectory over that period of time, it's always trended little by little in our direction. I mean, we have won this case. They refuse to pay a valid judgment. So the only position the villagers are in right now is a, a position of litigating to collect a valid judgment. The underlying merits of the case have already been decided in their favor by you know three layers of courts in Ecuador where they where Chevron wanted the trial held. So the villagers are in a very strong position. Now, it doesn't mean Chevron is going to capitulate. But I think there is going to come a point where Chevron is either going to have to pay the Ecuadorian judgment or a court in another country and probably in Canada will seize their assets, will seize their oil fields, will seize their tar sands, their refineries, their properties, their bank accounts if necessary, their dividends from their subsidiaries until the Ecuadorian judgment is paid off. Now, I don't think if it gets to that point, and I think we're getting closer and closer, Chevron is going to allow that to happen. At that point, they will settle the case. Now, I, I wonder, and you know, this is something that I, I have an idea about, but I can't say for certain, you know, Chevron's standing in a country like Ecuador is decidedly different from its standing in a place like the United States or in Canada. And I, I, I know United States obviously best, but even in Canada, my understanding is, you know, Chevron has a lot of strings that it can pull at very high political levels, including some of those uh, provinces and some of those communities where Chevron is present in, uh, in uh, Alberta and elsewhere in Canada that are totally dependent upon oil revenue. I just, I wonder, would there be some kind of an intercession on the part of the Canadian government to prevent Chevron from being forced into that position? Well, that's an excellent question. And let me just be as clear as we can be. I mean, the villages are not stupid, okay? They totally understand that Chevron plays a game um, at a geopolitical level, at a political power dynamic level, you know, a, a case in a court for them is just one little component of a much larger strategy to protect their interests and to really suppress those that, that demand accountability from the company. So, for example, in Ecuador, over the course of an eight-year trial, which, by the way, it was eight years largely because Chevron tried to delay it at every turn, mm -hmm. drowned the court in, you know, hundreds and hundreds of frivolous motions, the usual corporate defense strategy. In Ecuador, it was very clear that Chevron was meeting regularly with government officials, with the U.S. Embassy in Quito, WikiLeaks uh, released cables that proved this, to try to end run the lawsuit and work out some sort of settlement directly with Ecuador's government that would keep the communities 
from achieving justice. And, you know, that didn't work in Ecuador, largely because the government respects the rule of law and the, and the presidency of Rafael Correa wouldn't play those games. But that was also part of the fact that the communities had organized in Ecuador, publicized their plight throughout the country, and public opinion was behind them. And that guaranteed the independence of the courts such that they could do their duty and rule on the law you know, in the facts, in ways that they never could before when Texaco was operating in Ecuador years ago and was completely dominating the country. Now, if you translate that whole dynamic into Canada, of course Chevron will try to do all it possibly can to influence, you know, the Canadian court decision via political means, via economic pressure, any leverage point they can find. And they've already tried to do that. We're very vigilant for those types of things. You know, we, we, we organize in, in the countries where we litigate um, to demand that Chevron respect the rule of law, the independence of courts. But it's a constant, constant struggle. I mean, Chevron is constantly trying to lobby governments and, you know, create scare tactics and trying to convince the Canadian government that this, you know, why would Canadian courts possibly be interested in intervening in a dispute in Ecuador when it could damage their energy industry. You know, it hasn't worked so far. We don't think it's going to work, but it's something that the communities have to be cognizant of and, 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 and deal with on a constant, constant basis. You know, there's an international political component to this, too, that I think is important. And obviously, people who are listening to this program, and if you're a regular of Counterpunch, you you know, you're, you're on the left, you're interested in, in, in social justice and progressive movements. And I think that the, the uh, ascendance of Rafael Correa and his government in Ecuador, on the back of, of course, the growing, you know, the movement after Hugo Chavez and Evo Morales in Bolivia and so forth, that Correa's government in Ecuador has, in many ways, I think, proved itself, especially in regard to this case, that it is unwilling to bend to the whims of uh, corporate capital, particularly U.S. corporate capital. And I think that this is one of the reasons why you mentioned WikiLeaks. WikiLeaks has also revealed a number of nefarious activities by the U.S. government in an attempt to destabilize and ultimately remove Correa's government from power. And I think that the Chevron case is a good example of why the United States uh, and, and corporate interests that control our government, why the United States is so desperate to get rid of Korea. Korea presents an obstacle, and the Chevron case is a good example. Well, look, I mean, we have information from pretty reliable sources that Chevron has been funding opposition activities in Ecuador against Correa. Yep. I mean, this yep. is a company that operates on a very, very, you know, broad level in terms of trying to shape the context in which litigation takes place so the litigation will be more favorable to them. I mean, the other thing they've done is they've flat out sued Ecuador's government um, directly claiming that Ecuador's government should be responsible for the $10 billion judgment that the villagers won in their own private lawsuit against Chevron in Ecuadorian courts. I mean, it's basically an effort to get a taxpayer-funded bailout. Mm -hmm. um, I'm talking about Chevron's lawsuit against the government, which is happening, by the way, in an international arbitration context. But Chevron's seeking, if you can believe it, the, the chutzpah, a taxpayer-funded bailout of their pollution liability in Ecuador from the very people the company victimized by polluting in the first place. I mean, that kind of stuff, you see that stuff often enough in the United States where the governments bail out big companies, the banks, what have you. Um, it's, it's outrageous. 
that Chevron is suing Ecuador's government, but the entire purpose has a logic. The purpose is to create leverage and fear in Ecuador's government such that, you know, weak or corrupt officials in the government will give Chevron an audience and try to sort of resolve, quote unquote, the case in an amicable way, which might involve a very small payment. It would leave out the communities. And, and Chevron is constantly asking for the government to interfere in the judiciary in Ecuador and try to quash the lawsuit that the villagers already have won. This stuff goes on constantly. I mean, we have internal memos from Chevron that we got in, in the context of the litigation that show they were hiring high-level former U.S. State Department officials as consultants. They were approaching the State Department under when Hillary Clinton was Secretary of State making major private donations to fund State Department activities um, around the world, while also lobbying the State Department to try to help them approach Correa's government to work out this case as part of the broader U.S. foreign policy um, bilateral dynamic with Ecuador's government, including they even lobbied the United States trade rep to cancel all bilateral trade preferences for the entire country as retaliation for letting its citizens exercise their legal rights under the Ecuadorian constitution to sue a wrongdoer. I mean, yeah. the whole thing, yeah. the whole thing is beyond outrageous. And they do, this is how they operate wherever they go. We have found courts generally are, are not up to the task of sort of calling them out for this kind of outrageous behavior. You know, it's, it's difficult um, for courts to get their arms around this kind of stuff. However, Ecuador's courts, Obviously, we're independent enough to hold Chevron accountable. But I will say it took 11 years of litigation in Ecuador to get to a final judgment. And that was heavily to Chevron's advantage, because obviously, the more they can delay a final resolution, the more money they're going to ultimately save and the better it's going to be for them. Another thing about this case that has always interested me, and I do think it's obviously very much relevant today, is similar similar case, uh, not similar in terms of the the actual incident, but similar in terms of how it's playing out internationally, and that is the case between the billionaire hedge fund operator, uh, what's his first name, Peter? I forget. Singer is his last name, and uh, the 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 government is it Paul Singer? Yeah, the the the, go the government of Argentina. And this ongoing conflict wherein uh, he's basically he's basically uh, well, why don't you explain it? Maybe you could explain for people uh, a little bit about that case and how that's similar, because I see similar international tricks and, and, and leverage being used by Singer against the government of Argentina, as Chevron has done in Ecuador. Well, I, I think that's that's an important point of comparison. I mean, look, let me be clear. Our goal in this case is to get a recovery for the tens of thousands of Ecuadorians who need relief in terms of an environmental cleanup. And we want that done as quickly as possible. And it should be done because they won the case and they ha have a right to that money. But if you sort of look from a bigger perspective at, at the Ecuador case and compare it to the Argentina case, there are a fair number of similarities. And I would really say they come not only, you know, from Singer's fund that is trying to recover, you know, billions and billions of dollars from Argentina. Um, they also come from how Chevron approaches the litigation to try to suck money out of Ecuador for problems it caused in Ecuador. What's frightening to us, frankly, is how U.S. judges, particularly in the Southern District of New York, yep. 
um, yeah. who are handling both of these cases, certain aspects of both of these cases, um, have behaved. I mean, they have behaved in both the Argentina case and the Ecuador case like extremely arrogant imperialist judges who want to dictate to foreign countries, sovereign foreign countries, how they should go about their business, what their economic policy should be, mm-hmm. what their legal policy should be, what their constitution should be. It is just extraordinary um, what is happening in both cases. Now, in the Ecuador case, you know, the villagers won in Ecuador, they're enforcing in Canada. But in the meantime, Chevron sued me and my colleagues personally under civil RICO laws, racketeering laws meant for the mob in New York courts um, in 2011 and forced me to stand trial in a ridiculous, farcical civil case um, with no jury and no money damage. It was just purely for injunctive relief. And, and the judge in that case, Louis A. Kaplan, um, in my opinion, reverse engineered the result. He was completely unfair. He was biased against me and the Ecuadorians. He didn't disclose he had been invested in Chevron personally during the course of the trial. Um, you know, you can read about this on my website. It was an outrageous proceeding that resulted in a 500-page written judgment where he purports to claim that the entire case in Ecuador was a fraud and was sham litigation. I mean, the whole thing is a joke. The man doesn't even speak a word of Spanish, as I understand it, and he's ruling on Ecuadorian procedural and substantive law issues in a trial he never attended and couldn't even read the record about. I mean, it really was unbelievable. By the way, that's being a, his decision is being appealed. It doesn't really affect the enforcement action in Canada, and it's being appealed to the same court that upheld the trial judge's decision from the same New York court um, against the government of Argentina, claiming that they cannot pay, as you know, any of their bondholders with whom they had negotiated in good faith until they also pay an exorbitant amount of money to Singer's um, investment fund, the fund that had bought the debt of Argentina and held out and refused to participate um, in, in, the, in the agreement with the other bondholders. Yeah. You know, that, that, that kind of decision, by the way, completely disrupted Argentina's economy and their sovereign right to run their economic policy. It was opposed by the U.S. State Department. Um, it, it amazes me how an individual trial judge in New York can purport to make such decisions. I mean, by the way, it's also considered in the entire region of Latin America a complete outrage that these judges make these kinds of decisions. Um, but they still make them, and they have impact, and it's, it's most unfortunate. I don't think Canadian courts, by the way, are going to pay much heed to what this U.S. trial judge tried to do in a completely um, flawed proceeding where he wouldn't even hear basic evidence of what had happened in Ecuador. So, you know, I think the cases um, together, even though people often don't connect them, really help contextualize what these powerful economic interests in the United States will do to try to use U.S. courts as weapons yep. in their efforts to, in the efforts really to, to, in my opinion, unfairly shift, in, in the case of Chevron, shift liability from itself to the very people that poisoned in Ecuador, and in Singer's case, to completely disrupt the Argentinian economy just for purposes that his fund, you know, which serves obviously very wealthy individuals and, 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 and you know, uh, entities can get even greater returns. I mean, it really needs to be looked at. And I think U.S. courts generally, and certainly those in New York that are dealing with this, 
need to deal with these issues with a much greater dose of humility than they currently are. Well, yeah, and of course that it, it comes out of, as you mentioned, an imperialist arrogance. It comes out of a neo-colonial mindset where, although they won't consciously acknowledge it, these people still see Latin America as, quote-unquote, the U.S.'s backyard, and that the That's... U.S. gets to run the show, and that U.S. courts are superior to those of other countries, and that U.S. courts get to dictate to Argentina how they restructure their debt, how they deal with their currency, what they can tell the uh, bondholders and so forth. All of these things, of course, gross violations of the of the sovereignty of these countries. I mean, and just the most vicious uh, and naked form of neo-colonialism that you'll see. That's exactly right. And and you know, uh, Chevron is used to running roughshod over these countries. I mean, they they do it all the time. I think there is a, a greater awareness now in Latin America. Um, you know, certainly in Venezuela, Ecuador, Argentina, Brazil, and other places, you know, Peru, yep. that the United, that the approach of the United States, um, you know, is is really, really, uh, you know, inappropriate to well, put it mildly. And, and and the other thing is, it's happening. There's you know, there's this new organization called uh, CELAC, yep. which yep. is basically the Organization of American States without North America, without the United States and Canada, um, that meets regularly and is really, I think, there's the pushback against this kind of trend in U.S. courts is, is, is starting to happen and people are starting to speak out about it. I mean, I think it could be much more powerful and I hope it gets more powerful. But the countries and the leaders are aware of, of the completely inappropriate nature of what's happening. I mean, can you imagine? I'm just going to give you one example. Imagine if an Ecuadorian judge, trial judge, um, held a, a trial about a legal proceeding in the United States and ruled, um, despite the fact that the legal proceeding in the United States was affirmed by the U.S. Supreme Court, an Ecuadorian trial judge ruled that the U.S. Supreme Court was wrong and the, and the litigants in the U.S. case didn't have to, you know, didn't have to pay the judgment because that's essentially what Louis A. Kaplan did to Ecuador. You know, he is a U.S. trial judge who tried to overrule Ecuador's Supreme Court. I mean, what gives the man the right to even try to do that? We don't believe he had an legal right to even do this case, which is one of our grounds for appeal. But it's extraordinary if you think about the reverse. If an Ecuadorian judge tried to do that to the U.S. Supreme Court, that judge would be laughed at. When a U.S. judge does it, you know, the U.S. media doesn't see it, generally doesn't see it as anything abnormal. Oh, it's just how it's sort of done. Sure. I mean, uh, the validity of yeah. these courts is a function of the political power of the countries that they are representing. Um, uh, and look, I just got back from Venezuela a week ago. I, you know, I was there for the elections. I was there on a sort of a fact-finding mission. Uh, the situation in Latin America is complex right now. You're seeing a, a, a rightward shift that is really the counter-move the pushback against the progressive uh, left-wing movements that have developed in Latin America over the course of the last 15 years. Obviously, Hugo Chavez and the Bolivarian Revolution in Venezuela, the rise of Correa, Morales, Ortega, and Nicaragua. Um, and now we're beginning to see a pushback, of course, the victory of, of the right-wing pro-U.S. Uh, Macri in Argentina, who has now said that he wants to kick out Venezuela from some of these uh, multilateral institutions. He wants to move hard against Ecuador and others. So you are seeing a pushback of the pro-capital right wing in Latin America. And so I wonder, is, is, 
it doesn't seem that that will necessarily have an impact on this particular case because it's already actually been settled. But could this impact future cases where we might see U.S. corporations not being held to account in Latin America because the the region is moving ever so ever so slowly back into the grip of the United States? Well, look, I mean, I, I think every case is its own, has its own personality and kind of ecosystem. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it depends on the case, the people, the degree of organization, the country, the, the dynamics of the country, the independence of the legal system. Look, we all know generally um, court systems in countries reflect the power structure of the country. It is hard in any country in the world for those who are marginalized to get justice in their own courts. It yeah. is hard. Yeah. It is structurally almost impossible in some countries. As a matter of fact, in Ecuador, when we, did, when we started to do this case in the early 2000s after Chevron took us down to Ecuador, we were told by lots of people that it was a futile effort. You know, they're like, no judge will ever rule against Texaco or Chevron. We were told that more times than I can remember. And I'm like, no, 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 we're going to give it a shot. We're going to try to change the dynamics so the courts can truly become independent in Ecuador and, and understand that they have to you know, rule in the right kind of way based on the facts and the law. We were able to be successful. So, you know, it requires all the age-old organizing techniques. It requires political work. It requires excellent legal work. And it requires there to be in place conditions that in many respects are beyond the control of the litigators. But just to bring it back down to the extent which, you know, with Chevron, you know, major American oil company is willing to violate the law. You know, after we won our case in Ecuador, they had to come up with some fake uh, reason to try to claim the judgment was not valid. And they ended up finding a former Ecuadorian judge. And and, and to make a long story short, they paid this man $2 million. They gave him $38,000 out of a suitcase when they first met with him in Quito. And they got him to make up a story about me and my colleague Pablo Fajardo, where he where he um, where he testified in the U.S. trial under oath that we had he had knowledge that we had bribed the trial judge for a favorable opinion, which was complete, complete falsity. And the lawyers that Chevron hired, Gibson, Dunn, and Crutcher, a major corporate defense firm um, with offices in New York, L.A., and lots of other cities, the key lawyers there, we found out later, sat with this guy for 53 days coaching him for his so-called testimony where he lied. And the, the crazy thing is, subsequent to his testimony in that other arbitration proceeding where Chevron's suing Ecuador's government, he was cross-examined and he admitted lying repeatedly about key facts during the RICO case against me, which is a, another ground for our appeal of this case. My larger point is that Chevron operates, believes it has impunity, it makes up evidence, It pays witnesses in violation of federal law, but because it's a corporation and has an army of lawyers to protect it, it very, very rarely gets caught. Whereas if indigenous groups do the slightest thing wrong in in Chevron's eyes, like we were accused of um, our team writing an expert report that was submitted to the Ecuadorian court, which was, by the way, done completely consistent with how expert reports are submitted in Ecuador and often in the United States. But Chevron tried to make a big issue out of this, and the judge in the U.S. tried to claim that we had violated the law by working um, with a court expert to prepare his report documenting Chevron's pollution. In the end of the day, the Ecuadorian courts 
rejected Chevron's complaints about this and, and the many other fake issues that they were creating, and they affirmed the decision against the company. Um, the U.S. judge took all these fake issues and tried to like act like they were these big things when he didn't know anything about what had really happened in Ecuador, anything about Ecuadorian law. The point really is that the you know in Chevron's case at least, and I know this happens a lot um, in, in corporate America, is they will do anything they can up to and including creating false witness testimony to try to evade their legal obligations to people like those in Ecuador. And, you know, why do they do that? I mean, the larger issue to me is the very notion of actually paying real compensation, in this case, $10 billion, which, by the way, is a modest number compared to the actual damage. But paying that to indigenous groups, that blows up their business model. So, again, again, you know, they know that if the indigenous groups actually collect that money, there will be many, many other cases leading to enormous amounts of liability to Chevron around the world, potentially. So they're doing all they can. They're, they're spending to, to try to block this recovery in this case. They're spending massive sums of money. We estimate 2 to $3 billion already because the stakes are so high, not just on this case, but on what can happen in the future. Okay, um, we're pretty much out of time, but I have two final questions that I that I want to just ask you, and they're not 100% related, but I'll throw them both out at you. So first of all, we know we we know where the legal case stands as far as uh, the case in Ecuador goes. That's been settled, and now there's the question of actually getting uh, Chevron to pay up, but. How is that process affected by the decisions made in the New York courts? Are they affected? Are these separate decisions? What is the relationship between the pro-Chevron ruling in the U.S. and the pro-Ecuadorian ruling in Ecuador? How does those? How do those two things work? And then second question is, um, where does this community stand now? I mean, I know that there's a question about getting the getting the payment for the cleanup, but what are their lives like today? I mean, are they still living in the same place? Are they still dealing with all of the effects of that? Are they in some kind of a temporary space? What What is their situation currently? Okay, so in response to your first question, we don't think the U.S. courts have any impact on the Ecuadorian judgment whatsoever. Um, no U.S. judge, no, no U.S. court has the legal authority to try to block enforcement of a foreign judgment from another country in a third country, not the United States. I mean, it's preposterous to think that they would, even though this particular trial judge, Lewis Kaplan, tried to, you know, tried to sort of take that kind of power to himself. He's already been reversed once on appeal, even if he gets affirmed on appeal, which I think is highly doubtful. Um, the, the appellate decision will have no impact on the Ecuadorian judgment or the rights of the Ecuadorians to enforce their judgment wherever they want to in the world, be it Canada, Australia, Singapore, Brazil, Argentina, France, wherever they decide to go. Chevron, by the way, has assets in over 100 different countries, so there's a whole lot of places they can go to collect their judgment, even though now they're mostly focused on Canada because Chevron has enough assets in Canada to pay for 100% of the Ecuadorian judgment and and the the villagers have faith in Canada. So we don't think it has any impact. Um, Chevron would try to tell you differently. They try to use it to try to intimidate judges around the world. Oh, a U.S. judge ruled this way. He ruled the case is invalid. Therefore, you can't enforce the judgment. Well, once we sort of explain 
the real facts of the case, the Ecuadorian decisions, and the, the ridiculous nature of the U.S. trial, that argument doesn't last very long. So we're not, you know, we don't think it has any impact. They're going to try to claim it does. We think we're going to win that argument. As regards to how the people live, the people are suffering. Um, the, the land is terribly polluted. It's, it's, it's just shockingly polluted. I mean, I first went down there in 1993, and there's re- literally a thousand open-air waste pits some the size of Olympic swimming pools. You have, you know, cattle and, and, and farm animals walking into the pits and becoming asphyxiated and dying. You know, the pits are online. They're, 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 the oil toxins seep into the groundwater and into the soils and are run off, as I said, into streams and rivers. Um, it is impossible to live in this area, uh, certainly in the rural parts of the Amazon, which is 95 98% of the area, without being exposed to toxins either through what you eat, what you drink, um, what you breathe on a daily basis multiple times. You know, independent health evaluations show cancer rates in the region are dramatically higher than in other parts of Ecuador. This is directly due to the oil contamination caused by Chevron. The people are suffering. The indigenous groups in particular have a double suffering because they have their own culture. They've been displaced from their ancestral lands because the lands can no longer for the most part, support um, large populations like they had historically. You know, the animal population has been depleted. There's no fresh water. Um, you know, it's, it's very, very difficult to survive in, in, in off the land. And that was the traditional culture. So the culture of the indigenous groups, for the most part, have been radically altered, um, in some cases decimated. So the people are suffering. You know, I, I wonder personally, after 22 years of litigation, even if we the villagers get a full recovery, whether what had been before um, Texaco got there can be restored. Uh, I have my doubts. I mean, you know, experts say that the land and the waterways, for the most part, the damage can be mitigated such that the people can live in peace in the environment. But population displacement as a result of the pollution has been so great, it's questionable whether these indigenous communities can ever reconstitute themselves like they had historically. Yeah. But at a, minim, yeah. at a minimum, at a minimum, Chevron must be held to account and they must pay for the damage that they caused. And, and, and we fully expect that to happen, in, in, you know, hopefully in the short term. Well, there's no doubt about that. And in that regard, of course, uh, you have my full support. I'm sure you have the support of every single person listening to us. Um, I've been chatting with Stephen Donziger. He is the U.S. legal advisor to the Ecuadorian communities suing Chevron. Um, I mean, you're doing such important work, Stephen. I want to commend you for all of the work you've done, for the courage uh, that these indigenous communities have shown. And because, in effect, they're, they're not only uh, suing Chevron, they're really standing up against an entire corporate system on behalf of millions upon millions upon millions of other marginalized people also victimized by uh, corporate capitalism and these and these uh, predatory corporations. So uh, again, Stephen, thanks so much for all the work you're doing. Listeners, ChevronToxico.com, that's T-O-X-I-C-O, Toxico, ChevronToxico.com and StephenDonziger.com. You can find a lot of good information there. Stephen Donziger, thanks so much for coming on Counterpunch Radio. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it.